0: Well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to see the house full. Amen. Even uh, Paul and Jessica and the girls are here. Uh, Welcome back home, Paul and Jessica. If uh, you've not met Paul and Jessica Adkins, uh, many visitors here. Uh, Paul is our latest uh, member of the flock to depart uh, in ministry. Um, And uh, that's one of the things that the Lord has uh, really humbled me about over the last few years is that this church, as young as we are as a church... We have sent out Matt and Melanie Parrott as missionaries. Okay, we've sent out Paul and Jessica Adkins now at the Rescue Mission. Bill and Kathy Baron Camp. Bill has now, if you've not heard, Bill has now been officially voted in as the permanent pastor at Monterey First Baptist Church. Um, and we're we're just a sending group of folks, aren't we? Um, and and on one hand, uh, as the pastor, I hate to see people leave, but then on the other hand, I see that the hand of the Lord is directing their lives and they're going out in ministry. And, uh, even this fall, we have Madison Gentry heading to Paraguay to go visit with Tony and Jean Floyd, who are missionaries that we've embraced and become friends with. She'll be down there in October for, uh, what, two weeks? Yeah. To help out down there. Um, and then uh, they're not here now, and this is why they're not here. David and Donna Leggett, they were here this morning for Bible study, but they are now in uh, Knoxville uh, having a meeting uh, with a group of people who are going to Guatemala in November. Uh, David and Donna Leggett have been ministering in Guatemala for years. So we are in a season as a church where there's a lot of missions activity, a lot of evangelism, a lot of preaching is happening, and we're sending people out or the Lord is rising them up and sending them out. Uh, seems like people just come to me and say, here's what the Lord's doing. And I say, okay, well, bless you. God bless you. It's not, we're doing, we're not doing anything. It's the Lord who's directing their lives. Amen? It's an amazing thing for Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. Well, all visitors who are here, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Um, and if you have not filled out a visitor's card, there's one right back here at the uh, the Welcome Center, the little uh, podium back here. If you wouldn't mind, fill out one of those for us and, and let us know how we can pray for you and how we can uh, be with you, okay? Well, turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 18. <clears throat> and as we begin, I want to uh, thank you for your patience with me the last two weeks as I've been dealing with coughing, congestion, and this week is somewhat better. So I'm going to try to get through this week without much uh, interruption and cough. I think it's going to be a three-cough drop sermon. <laughs> um, usually, I'll have one cough drop. I think today's going to be three cough drops. Amen. Okay, so turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, and, and as we, 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 we're going to be, I want us to read verses 1 through 9 today, but I want to emphasize verses 5 through 9, but I want to read all of verses 1 through 9 to get the context for the warning that Jesus gives in verses 5 through 9. And before we jump into this, though, let's remember that the previous verses of this chapter that we looked at last week, Gives us the scene of Jesus' twelve, remember in verse one of chapter eighteen, they ask a childish question concerning who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and in Jesus' wisdom, he gives an illustration of a child to teach them about their childish question of who is the greatest i mean I mean Jesus here he knew the genesis of the question, he knew that it was childish, he knew it was self-serving and he saw the immaturity of his 12 disciples, and he brings this child in the midst of them to make a point about humility in the kingdom of heaven and how that is the greatest state. In verse 4, Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now verses 5 and 6 are going to be words of warning from our Lord and because there's an eternal consequence to receiving or harming the little ones who come to the kingdom in their trusting humility. There's a warning here. I mean, there's a dire warning. And then in verses 7 through 9, Jesus will explain even further the woeful consequences that temptation brings especially the temptations that misdirect or mislead the little ones. These are the words of Jesus today. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. And let's read here about caring for the little ones and how we love one another in this. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, "'Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?' And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you are highlighting anything, highlight verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who become who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Passage of scripture that not many will want to focus on, but today we must. So let's pray together. Dear God, I pray this morning that you would humble us at the hearing of your word. Temptations are a consequence of a fallen world, and we are tempted, we we swim in temptations. Yet it is the sin that comes from succumbing to temptation that Jesus is mostly concerned of. And he's mostly concerned about the protection of those who are humble, who believe in him, and he wants to protect them from the temptations that lead to sin because they belong to him. And so, God, I pray this morning you would speak to each of us here. You would speak to us firstly about the temptations that we personally deal with regularly. But then secondly, Father, I pray that your word would remind us that the temptations we deal with do affect others. It's not just a private struggle. And Lord, I pray that your word would speak to us clearly today about that. And you would show us truly the consequences of succumbing to temptation and all who are harmed by it. Lord, we love you, and we pray that you would love us. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. I think the heart of the lesson from Jesus in this scene is that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are those who benefit from the greatest love that redirects our personal ambition. Remember in verse 1, if you're trying to remember anything about chapter 18, always go back to verse 1 of chapter 18. That's the context of this sermon of Jesus. All of chapter 18 is one sermon or teaching session with his disciples. So I think verse 1 sets the tone for all of chapter 18. I mean, what Jesus is saying here, he's redirecting their distorted ambition to be the greatest. There's no room for self-serving ambition in the kingdom of heaven according to what Jesus is teaching us here. Why is that? Because the origin or the genesis of the fall in the Garden of Eden was personal ambition. To be as great as God or truly to be greater than God. That's the root of all sin. We see that in Genesis chapter 3. And we've been wrestling with this for all of humanity. And that's what's happening here in Matthew 18. These disciples must be taught a very important lesson if they are to take over the kingdom of heaven and establish the church when Jesus departs. They are misdirected here. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus? And Jesus knew the heart of the question. This seems to be the root of all sin, this distorted personal ambition. I mean, for argument's sake, let's say that the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, only wanted to be equal with God, only wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil. That was their desire. Yet the issue with this created desire to proximate our equality with God is that we as the created now possess a distorted ambition. That's what sin does. It takes what God gives us as ambition because there's nothing wrong with ambition in the proper context of God's design. We should have the ambition to be more like Christ. We should have the ambition to be near our Father in heaven and glorify his name. Yet sin distorts that ambition to our own will. I want to be great. I want to be like God. That is what Adam and Eve wrestled with here. That's a distorted ambition. It's this ambition to be greater than who God has made us to be. That is at issue here in chapter 18. I mean, his 12, his disciples here, they practiced a distorted ambition with this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I mean, Jesus teaches a great lesson on humility here. Remember, it seems like here in the last, all throughout the summer and back into the spring, it seems like here at Sovereign Grace, the Lord is showing us passages of Scripture about humility. Even on Wednesday nights when we were going through James back in the spring, humility seemed to be the focus there, wasn't it? Same thing here, humility. He teaches a great lesson on humility here with this illustration of the child. The love of Christ that humbles the sinful heart, the sinful, ambitious heart. God's, I mean, Christ's love does this. It humbles us. It imparts a childlike trust in him. I mean, this childlike trust is the entry into the kingdom and is what elevates the sinner, the humble sinner, the broken sinner, to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The humility of Christ. So just to remember here, just a reminder, the scene in chapter 18 actually continues the final scene from chapter 17, where Peter, remember, is challenged by the collectors of the temple tax, and Peter witnesses Jesus in his humble flexibility to pay the tax and provide for the tax. Jesus could have claimed his divine right as the son to not pay the temple tax. Yet he illustrated to his disciples, and specifically to Peter, let's pay this tax, and let me show you how we're gonna do it. He could have been, he could have elevated himself. But that wasn't the right way. He actually elevated himself greater by being humble. Now Jesus in verse, chapter 18 illustrates greatness in the kingdom of heaven by the ungreat, the child. Just to recap in verse 2, and then we're going to start looking at verses 5 through 9. Remember in verse 2, Jesus, he often used pictures in his parables to convey truth. Here in verse 2, he uses a little child. And I would say perhaps a boy, since Matthew says that when Jesus speaks, he says, put him in the midst of them. Got to be a little boy here. So in in this lesson, a little child is the best definition of the greatest. This is what Jesus is teaching. It's not that the childlike innocence or the purity of a child who has avoided corruption is what Jesus speaks of here. That's not the illustration. Remember, children in Jesus's day had had to limit themselves to listening and obeying. A lot of parents thinking here, going, "Wow, I wish that was still the case." Right? Children in Jesus's day, especially, they were to be seen and not heard. They were to be obedient and dependent upon the care of the mother and the father. That's the illustration. It's not the innocence of a child Jesus is pointing out here as much as it is the state of the child in obedience and trust to those in authority. Children allow themselves to be ruled. Well, even in their rebellion, they're still really seeking authority over them. It's the nature of being a child rather than the adult's Submitting to the children, the children submit to the adults. I know in our modern day of 2022, that seems like it never happens anymore. But that's that's the illustration of Matthew 18. And Jesus, he, he wants no great arrogant ones in his kingdom except him. Jesus is he is the greatest. He is the one who is above all. And he does not want his disciples to miss this point. So just as children give their full attention and energy to anything they do, this is just a summary from last week, so too Jesus demands that the greatest in his kingdom give their full attention and loyalty to him, just like a child is intent in their play. Just as children give themselves fully to their little tasks in their little worlds, no matter how insignificant it is, so too Jesus expects the greatest in the kingdom of heaven to give themselves fully to, to the kingdom, fully to the Savior. Be always faithful, always faithful. And just as children can be flexible and, and teachable, so too Jesus expects the greatest in the kingdom to be flexible and humble and teachable. Because the question in Matthew 18, 1 is clearly not a question of humility and teachability. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus. It's not a very teachable question. It's a very arrogant question. So just as children also love to receive presents and gifts, anybody ever met a child who didn't enjoy receiving a gift? Just like that, Jesus expects the greatest in the kingdom of heaven to joyfully accept and embrace the gift of salvation and forgiveness. That's what he expects, to embrace the gift of his love for them. That's the illustration here got the summary, got the big picture. Now let's jump into verses five through nine. Now that we've laid the illustration here, because we looked at that last week, verses one through four, we really unpacked that a lot last week. Now let's let's look at verses five through nine. Now Jesus gets to the meat of the lesson, okay? I mean, this is why I wanted to take a full sermon to unpack the consequences of how to treat the little ones in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, there's there's much to consider here when when called by our Lord to embrace the little ones, the children in his name. I mean, there's much to caution here as well about misleading them. Let's talk. Let's take a look at Jesus's words of warning here. But let's look at this with an open mind and open ears. That's my encouragement. Open the mind, open ears. Let us ask our Lord to reveal to us first. Are we even close to being trusting enough to enter the kingdom of heaven? It begins there. Are we, are we trusting in the Lord enough? Are we humble enough to even be welcomed into the kingdom? If so, are we open and loving and embracing of others? Are we open and loving and embracing of the little ones who come to the kingdom? There's a twofold part here. Starts with us and our heart and our humility and then are we then expressing the same to those others? So let's look here in verse five. Whoever receives one such child in my name, what? Receives me. When you receive one of these children, Jesus is saying it's as if you're receiving me. He he, he urges his disciples here to become little. Namely, before God, the father humble before. Remember, that's back in verse three. This requires a turnaround, a repentance or a conversion to be more childish, to be unimpressive, not arrogant and prideful. Now, Jesus, here in verse five, he urges his disciples to embrace the love that he himself expresses. His love embraces these little ones. Jesus embraces these little ones, and he brings nothing to them of harm. Remember that Jesus is not speaking about children literally here. In one way, he is speaking about children literally, but then there's a deeper reality here. He's using this illustration to speak to the humble and the insignificant in our communities, in our churches, in our world. you know those who are insignificant? who are unlovable, who are less than. That's I think this is the deeper illustration here of the children. And these are the ones who will be elevated as the greatest in the kingdom. The ones who are insignificant will be the greatest in the kingdom. I mean, we become childlike and obedient by giving ourselves to others. That's what he's saying here, verses 5 and 6. Not just giving ourselves to others in order to be seen. Remember the pride of the Pharisees who prayed in the temple court just to be seen? Yet there was a tax collector praying right beside him who was broken and humble in prayer. This was in Luke chapter 18. Jesus elevates the broken and the humble, the tax collector, over the prideful Pharisee. Notice the words of Jesus here in Matthew eighteen five, Whoever receives one such child in my name, one such child. To embrace one such child means to more broadly embrace all insignificant or all people who are ig- ignorable. You can ignore certain people because they are not of the great stature. I mean, even those in the body of Christ who are less likable, less significant, perhaps even difficult to like or to be around. You, you, you may be one of those people. You may be somebody who looks down upon some people. What Christ gives us to do here in the body of that he calls the church, we do with pleasure and without coveting higher approval for ourselves. That's part of what Jesus is saying here. We love the unlovable. We love the insignificant little ones because God's gift of love is especially granted to them. You see that? I mean, yet verse 5, let's, let's remember here in verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. This is not just a moral lesson. It's not a lesson of how to behave. It's an eternal lesson. I mean, Jesus expects the greatest in his kingdom to take in the little ones who are the greatest, just as if one was taking in Jesus himself. That's the key. Look here in verse five, who receives them in my name. If you accept them in my name, it says, if you are receiving me. Jesus is illustrating himself here as the insignificant little one. If you accept a little child or an insignificant person, you're accepting them, you're actually accepting me too. That's a huge thing. I mean, a closer translation here of this phrase in verse 5 could be, you know, the, the idea of in my name could actually be in my reputation or... The name above all names. Remember, remember in Philippians chapter two, verse nine, Paul reminds us, therefore, God has highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So when we receive a little one, an insignificant one in Christ's name, we are accepting and receiving the name above all names. Highest of all. That's an irony here because Jesus is showing the least of the community, the least of the society, the most insignificant around us, the ones that we overlook and walk over, really. Yet when you receive them, you're receiving him. It's as if Jesus is showing his disciples, I will be as humble and broken as they are. And when you receive them, you receive me. I mean, Jesus teaches here in verse 5, To receive the little ones out of devotion to Christ is to receive Christ Himself as if we're showing our own insignificance. I mean, Jesus received us all. If we were somebody, although we were far from God's grace, He received all of us who were distant from Him in sin. I mean, Jesus, therefore, I mean, what's he doing? He's inspiring his 12 to receive others as if they were somebody, especially when the world saw them as nobody. I mean, Jesus teaches here in verse 5 that receiving or embracing the littlest of ones is equivalent to the greatest service in the kingdom of heaven. So verse 5, Jesus is showing them how to be the greatest servant in the kingdom by serving the most insignificant amongst you. That's the key. That's just what Jesus does for us. Did he not serve us with his life? We who are the most insignificant, lowly sinners of them all, Jesus served by breaking his own body for us. So he's expecting the greatest in the kingdom to do the same. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, Jesus in verse 5, he's talking about receiving and embracing the little ones to be equal to the greatest service in the kingdom. But verse 5 is the call to practice this type of humility because humility cannot be a personal morality alone. You cannot just embrace Christ and keep him in. This is between me and the Lord. We have to be active in this humility. We have to be active in this call to embrace the little ones. Now let's look at verse 6. He continues, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Verse 5 was an encouragement, a positive word, and verse 6 is the negative warning. Now, here at Sovereign Grace, if you've been around for a long time, you know sometimes I don't mean to step on toes. I'm just telling you what the Word says. Uh, This is one of these times that I think we're all going to have some toes stomped here. Y'all ready for that? Don't run out of here crying and angry. This is the words of Jesus. Let's get into it here. So Verse 6, now Jesus, he he turns this lesson to the negative here. It's a warning. The love that embraces those who are insignificant is also the love that desires to protect them. That's the key here. Embracing the little ones is easy. Now Jesus wants to protect them. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of Jesus when he's protecting his little ones and you're the one harming the little ones. We're in a bad place. I mean, the love that embraces them, it does not seek to harm them. The love does not seek to harm anyone's faith in Christ. And this is what Jesus is now warning, because if you remember verse 18, verse 1, or chapter 18, verse 1, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Verse 6 ties back to that. Jesus is seeing this childish personal question of his disciples as a danger of harm to the insignificant little ones. It's not just a personal pride issue amongst the 12 men who are the apostles. It's now a dangerous attitude that will harm the humble child who comes to the kingdom. And Jesus in verse 6, I think that warning is directed to his disciples. Be careful here. You're getting ready to get on the wrong side and I'm going to protect my little ones. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck to be drowned in the depth of the sea. These are harsh words. These are words of warning. I mean, these are words of warning against temptation. Notice here, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. These are words of warning about temptation that leads to sin. We're going to unpack here in verses 7 through 9 the idea of temptation here because all of this is tied together. Here Jesus makes clear that citizens of his kingdom, even genuine Christians, can cause others to sin and he's going to hold them responsible for that misdirection, especially by misleading the innocent, the humble, the little ones. I mean, I want us to take verses 7 to 9 here in a little bit, but let's look here at verse 6. Let's understand verse 6 before we jump into 7 through 9. I mean, from this point on in chapter 18, if you're paying attention to any phrase, underline this. Pay close attention to the words little ones or one. You're going to see that repeated often in chapter 18. In verse 6, Jesus speaks of one of these little ones. This phrase will, is going to be repeated often here in this in Jesus' sermon. The one means that the special Christian contribution to the community or the kingdom of heaven is the passion of the individual. Passion for the individual. I mean, Jesus speaks of the other person, not one's self-serving attitude. He, he warns here in verse 6: it's an eternally dire consequence. For anyone who tempts and misdirects the little one to sin. I mean, Jesus takes seriously the humility. He takes seriously those who are humble and broken, who believe in me as ones to protect. That's what verse 6 says. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. And if you misdirect them, Jesus takes seriously this issue. He protects those who believe in him. I mean, here's the warning for one who is so full of ambition and pride, who in that ambition and pride sucks in others who believe in Christ to be prideful and self-serving. Verse 6, the latter half says, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Care for the least of them. The word here in the Greek is actually the word we get micro from. You know what micro is? The littlest, the least. Jesus stresses this to say that a horrible death in this life would actually be better than the eternal judgment awaiting the one who harms the little one. I mean, the judgment of eternal death waits anyone who is guilty of misleading one who believes in Christ. So who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I mean, this comes from the sinful attitude here. Where where does the sin come from that leads to such an eternal judgment? It begins with pride and ambition, the ambition that the 12 disciples wanted in in verse 1 of chapter 18. Who is the greatest, Lord? And Jesus is warning them here, that attitude is going to infect the humble, broken little ones who are coming to the kingdom. Let's deal with this now. I mean, this prideful temptation leads others to follow, especially the vulnerable, the the, the contrite and broken heart, the humble. They are in a place of vulnerability and Jesus is protecting them. I mean, many Christian thinkers here argue that these little ones were the feeble-minded or the sheep-like, the weaker Christians in the faith. I mean, perhaps Jesus emphasizes the new believer here as the little one. I mean, the one who is fresh in the faith, who has not yet grown in maturity, who is ripe for deception. I mean, in contrast, the millstone that Jesus speaks of here is not A tiny little stone I mean how big is the millstone it's the largest stone in the mill that only an animal could move that's how big this way and Jesus is saying it's better for you to be drowned by that size of a stone than to face the judgment and wrath of my father in heaven that's pretty big I mean, certainly no man could withstand the weight of this type of a stone. But Jesus is speaking the truth here. The overwhelming weight and the pain of drowning under the millstone is better than the eternal weight of judgment that awaits one who misdirects the new believer. The little ones who are freshly broken in spirit and openly embracing Jesus' salvation. Or even worse, if you are to misdirect somebody that the Holy Spirit is convicting and working on and they've not quite come to the point of belief and faith yet and you misdirect that sincerity and you lead them astray, Jesus is saying it would be better for you to drown from a millstone wrapped around your neck than to face the wrath of my Father. Jesus is protecting the hearts of the humble here. That's the point. Some of you are sitting there going, oh, am I guilty? I don't know. What's the Lord saying? I mean, sin is destructive. Sin carries a weight that drowns the soul. And so Jesus' warning is serious here. Sin follows unbridled temptation. I emphasize the word unbridled temptation here. Because let's look here at verses 7 through 9 and let's understand the idea of temptation here and what it's going for. I mean, let's unpack really what Jesus is saying. It's it's, it's the love that seeks no harm. By understanding that Jesus here, he, he gives further warnings of woe about temptation. Verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. Now we're getting into some woe passages. What does it mean to woe? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a stop here. Listen. Woe. <clears throat> here Jesus is repeating the warning of verse 6. The one who brings temptation to another brings judgment upon himself. It's a woe. And it's interesting that Jesus speaks of the necessity of temptation in verse 7. You all see that? Woe to the world for temptation is in, for it is necessary that temptations come. So why would Jesus confirm the necessity of something that is so dangerous to the soul? I mean, temptation hurts one's faith in Christ Jesus. We're, I mean, we're surrounded by temptation. We swim in it every day. Temptation is around us. We cannot escape it. it is, the nature of, of the fallen world that we're in is against God and it harms others. It makes harm and hurts. And therefore, temptations are inevitable because of the fallen nature of the world that we're in. I mean, this is called by some thinkers the free will defense or the soul-making argument that some apologists and theologians use. It's the idea of the very nature of the fallen world is sin. Therefore, the nature of the world is to tempt us to sin, tempt us to evil, that this is somehow the necessary byproduct of sin. But Jesus is not arguing that he makes temptations necessary. I want to repeat that. Jesus is not saying here in verse 7 that he is making necessary temptation. I want to underline that. Nor does the Father in heaven make necessary the temptations of the world. Nor does the imparted Holy Spirit make temptations necessary. What makes temptations necessary is the sinful nature of us. God doesn't make temptations necessary. It's the sin that we embrace, that we, of who we are. I mean, our human nature is sinful, not by God's created design, but by our embrace of it. That's what makes temptations necessary. So we are bringing temptations upon ourselves, according to what Jesus is saying here. Yet the woe to the person who adds to the world's temptation. In other words, there's enough temptation to deal with. Why do you want to bring more temptation upon the innocent? Who, whoever increases the necessity of temptation in the world is someone who rebels against his, his creator. And Jesus is saying, woe to the person who causes harm on the individual who believes in the salvation offered and made possible by him, Christ Jesus, our Lord. I mean Jesus laments her this is a lament he laments the necessity of the temptation of the fallen world he is woefully lamenting as much as a warning here but let's not be misguided in our interpretation of Jesus' warning here in verse seven, um, there, there are two woes mentioned here. Look here in verse seven. The first woe is clearly a lament of the necessity of a fallen world for temptation to be there to sin. The second woe does imply, I want you to underline this and pay attention to this. The second woe in verse seven implies an avoidable personal responsibility. In other words, we are, we are not fated to sin because of the temptations that surround us. It's not a fate. Necessity does not imply that it's unavoidable. That's the key. So what Jesus is saying here in verse seven is, he's he's lamenting the necessity of the consequence of sin, which is temptation to sin. But that doesn't mean that we are somehow wrapped up in a fate that we cannot avoid it. There's a personal responsibility that Jesus is talking about here. The power of temptation can and often is avoided by those who are truly faithful in Christ. doesn't mean we're perfect. There's absolutely no perfect Christian who never sins. But the power of temptation can and often is avoided because of faith in Christ. Now, some of you are saying, now, wait a minute. I thought I, I'm, I'm just... God just overlooks my sin and just kind of whitewashes it. No. The anger of our Father in heaven is still very much at play against sin. Yet it is Christ and His sacrifice on the cross and His resurrection from the dead that has appeased that wrath. If we remember that, that will cause us to pause the next time we're tempted to sin. Wait a minute, God's wrath is still relevant here, (laughs) but Jesus paid the price for my sin. I mean, C.S. Lewis explores the power to avoid the consequences of temptations in much of his writing. If you've read any of C.S. Lewis, both the fiction of the Narnia books, and then even if you've ever read any of his more academic essays or his apologetics He emphasizes what Jesus is emphasizing here in verses 7 through 9. Temptation may be the necessary byproduct of a fallen creation, but Jesus' power of grace and his power of forgiveness and the victory he has over Satan and sin does make it possible for the believer in Christ to overcome the consequences of temptation when it comes. Otherwise, Jesus would not have told his disciples here in verses 7 through 9, Avoid the temptation. And here's how you're going to do it. Let's look here in verses 8 through 9. Here comes the way to avoid the pain that is caused by submitting to the temptation. Remember the temptation in this context. We've got to remember it. What is the temptation in the context here? It's the context and the temptation of self-serving ambition. Misguided ambition is the temptation and the context here. Remember verse 1, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Verses 8 and 9 speak boldly about how to avoid the consequences of the necessary temptations that are coming our way. And this is one of the temptations. The the, the necessary temptation here is misguided ambition And, and how to avoid this temptation to mislead the little ones to follow you. It's a matter of kill or be killed, according to Jesus' words. Kill the temptation, or the temptation will kill you. Look here, in, in if you remember back in Genesis chapter 4, God warns Cain when Cain's anger was building out of control. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But notice here in Genesis 4-7, but you must rule over it. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 8-9, Jesus actually echoes this. He gives direct instruction on how to avoid the eternal judgment that awaits all who succumb to the temptations for sinful ambition and sinful pride. Cut it out, he says. Tear it out. He's pretty direct. I mean, his approach to the problem of harming the little ones, harming the faith of others is the point. His reaction is very severe. He commands us to look at that which is hurting faith in ourselves, and the byproduct is that which is hurting the faith of others. We are to kill the temptation in us, and throw it out so that it does not harm anyone else. I mean, notice the emphasis of the individual temptations to to sin in verses 8 and 9. Let's read that. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Notice here the emphasis of the individual temptations. If your hand or your foot causes who? You to sin. The warning points out the major problem with individual temptation. We are more apt to find what is in us that is hurting others by discovering what is hurting us. In other words, if you are harming someone else, if you are offending someone else and causing them to sin, Jesus is saying, look at the source, it's in you. Cut it out. I mean, one's own addictions, our passions, our selfishness will always break Throughout, it'll always break out in our words and our actions, our lifestyle and our teaching. No matter how much we want to suppress the sin and the temptations that are in us, that control us, no matter what happens, it's going to ooze out and affect others. That's what he's saying here. And here's what he's saying. And if, if, if we not, if, and if not, if we not cut it off, if we don't cut it out of our hearts, we will tempt others to join us in our sin. I mean, the, the issue is that too often we do not realize what temptations we are struggling with, and, and therefore we become tools of Satan. He's very subtle. He'll tempt us. One of his names is the tempter. And, and when we do when we're not aware of the temptations we're struggling with, we the, Satan actually lures us into his embrace, and then we in turn lure the innocent or the little ones into this jungle of our own sin. I mean, Jesus warns directly here, and I think he means it. He's not pulling any punches. Harming oneself for the sake of holiness is much preferred over harming the innocent with temptation to sin. I mean, living in the repentant That disciplines of the Christian life, when we are actually following the disciplines of the Christian life, when the God, the father is disciplining us, it hurts temporarily. (laughs) But this pain is for the good of our soul and only hurts for a little while. And it then saves us from the eternal misery and the suffering at the hands of our holy God. I mean, Jesus' warning here is very direct. Cut off whatever is the source of the temptation. It is better to discard the motivation for temptation than to succumb to the sin that temptation brings. I mean, but let's also remember that the context of verses 1 through 9 here is that the 12 are being tempted to tempt the little ones. That's another temptation they're dealing with. So secondly, the warning from Jesus shows that one's individual temptation does not ever remain private. Others will also suffer from our personal temptations. Temptation then is not just this subjective personal issue within the individual. All temptation can infect those around us. And in the context here of Matthew 18:1 through 9, The little ones are affected by the temptations of the more mature apostles, those in authority. I mean, remember Jesus' warning here in verse 7. Woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Woe to them. Temptation to sin begins with the individual, but then easily spreads to others nearby, and especially it spreads to the vulnerable, the children, the new believer, The feeble-minded? The ones prone to influence? I mean, can I, can I just be honest and say that those who are manipulated by others, we are in a culture that we are manipulated and told what to think and what to say and what to do. We are in the information age and the information age has numbed our minds to think. We can't think anymore. Someone else is always manipulating and and really causing us to sin along with them. How much time do you spend on social media versus listening to the word of God? Who on social media is influencing the way you think? Who in the news cycle is influencing and infecting the way you think? Are we thinking for ourselves? Are we turning to the Lord and listening to Him? Or are we allowing the voices of sinful humanity to tempt us to think like they do? I mean, what what happens is that the temptations come so easily and, and we don't really honestly think about it. We don't reflect on the temptations because they are so subtle and they're so alluring. The Christian will fall to the temptations from elsewhere, and then we will be a vessel by which the sin spreads further. This is why Jesus is warning here, do not allow the temptations to cause you to be the one who tempts others to follow in your sin. It's not just a personal thing. Maybe this will cause us to rethink how we follow our temptations. I mean, let's close here. Let's think about the importance of Jesus' salvation and God's grace. I mean, the perfect knowledge of God and of Christ is life everlasting. He offers this to the faithful, to the humble and the brokenhearted, to the repentant. Anything that would hinder or obscure this grace and this salvation is neither to be spoken or done by the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Anything that causes harm to the faith of someone who is coming to Christ is a dangerous, dire warning. I mean, anything that would hinder them or obscure the grace of God is to be discarded. I mean, the truly humble, the truly sacrificial are to sacrifice their own pride and their own arrogance so as not to mislead the little ones of the kingdom. That's what he's telling the disciples here. Discard your ambitious pride, lest you mislead the humble and the childlike of the kingdom. That's what he's saying. Rather than provoke or tempt the little ones, the truly righteous in the kingdom were to exhort the little ones. I mean, we, how do we do that? We do that with words. We do that with actions. And we encourage those who are broken and humble to enter the glory of the Father in His kingdom. We're not to misdirect them, right? I mean, Jesus is warning here. It's not to cause one to stumble or misdirect from the right course of repentance and faith. I mean, there, there's a great eternal judgment and punishment for anyone who misdirects someone and, and causes them to avoid the eternal promise of salvation. Man, you, Jesus is very direct here. He's going to protect that soul. I mean, Jesus Christ, he calls his disciples to stretch out their hands to the little ones who are rejected by the world and to let them kindly, and he wants them to kindly assist them along the path to righteousness. Don't misdirect them, and mislead them. You're called to assist them, and bring them to the Father, and bring them to me. I mean, the image of the cut off hand and the cut off foot and the gouged eye. I want to say this: it's both literal and it's figurative. I mean, I'm not one to advocate amputating the body. Don't go out of here and say, Pastor Brian says, go cut off your foot and cut off your hand and gouge out your eye. But Jesus is being pretty direct here. It's a pretty harsh image for a purpose. I mean, Jesus makes a point that cannot be taken lightly. That's the point here. No matter how alluring the temptation is, Jesus says it's better to cut it out than to allow it to infect you and lead you to sin. I mean, the image is strong for his disciples here, in this teaching moment that is happening with this child. And likewise, I think we too must take the boldness of the lesson to heart. We must ask our Lord to make us aware of those parts of our lives that pull us and others away from him. I mean, we must then obey our Lord and cut it out of our lives. We have to gouge it out of our vision so as to focus on the correct path of righteousness, which is the grace and the forgiveness that is the kingdom of heaven. What is it that you're wrestling with? Is it pride? Is it ambition? Is it control? Is it... I'm going to say this as kindly as I can with the children in the room. Is it things, adults, that we should not be seeing or thinking or participating in? Internet stuff? What is it that we're wrestling? I mean, we all are dealing with some temptation. And are we turning to the Lord in that? Or or is it so infecting us that we are not only sinning in it, that we're also sucking other people to come right along with us? And these are the words of our Lord here. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's the one who gouges out the temptation that leads to sin because they realize the danger of misdirecting others away from Christ Jesus himself and the grace and the forgiveness offered. Do we embrace that individually? If we're not, well, we're tempted to make our own way. And we're going to, aware or unaware, lead others in the same path. So it begins with us, begins with the individual, for the purpose of affecting others. Do we want to mislead people away from Christ or do we want to direct them to Christ with our words and our actions and our attitudes and our being? If there's temptation that controls us, we're not going to lead anyone to Christ because we're not, we're not into Christ either. <laughs> if the temptations roll us and control us, Christ is not ruling and controlling us. But if Christ rules and controls us, The temptations can be kept in check. And likewise, we can help others do the same by leading them to Christ. Amen? Amen. Come on forward, musicians. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. These words of your son, Jesus Christ, are harsh, firm, yet loving. And Lord, there are many of us who are listening to this right now who we we, we are wrestling with temptations of many kinds. And at the very root of all of our temptations is our selfish ambition and pride. Whatever that temptation may be, Lord, whoever is listening to these words, Lord, I pray that your spirit, your grace of mercy and forgiveness would, would be poured out upon all of us who are wrestling and being tempted with sin. Lord, we do not want to mislead anyone away from your son, Jesus Christ. So it begins with us embracing and pouring into the sacrifice of your son and in loving him for it and believing and trusting that we are forgiven and then we're broken and we're humble. And May that brokenness and humility be what others see in us and may they be influenced by that over our pride and our arrogance. Lord, I pray for your protection over every soul in this congregation and over every soul who is listening to this. Draw them to your Son, Jesus Christ. Draw them to repentance of their sin and laying that down at the feet of the cross so that they do not mislead others away from the cross. Help us all, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as Nathan is leading us in the closing hymn, let me encourage us all. This is a time to respond to the word of, of our Savior. What is it that we're wrestling with? I mean, it may be something we're not aware of. I mean, this is why we come to the Lord regularly and we say, dear Lord, examine my heart. Show me where I am misdirected. Show me where I'm failing you. Show me what temptations I'm wrestling with. It may be a temptation that has so embraced you and consumed you, you're not even aware that it's there. This is where we trust our Lord. Let's use this time to reflect and meditate, pray, and come before the Father. Amen.